just a reminder, if you haven't figured it out already, uh, first Sunday of the month, we kind of flip-flop the order of things. Um, and we will conclude our time together with uh, communion and then worship. Hey, Jonas, I'm getting a tremendous amount of feedback or echoing. Cool, thanks. Um, let me ask this question as we get started this morning. Um, does anybody like to travel? Yeah? Vacations, short weekend trips, day trips, right? Uh, travel. Um, it's become easier nowadays than it, than it used to be, right? I mean, it's kind of created its own culture. There's a whole travel industry. Um, probably more than any time before in history, travel is a regular part of life. People, for their jobs, just go hop on an airplane, go across the country, or go, to a, go across an ocean and have a meeting or spend a couple days working with a group of people, and then they can fly back. Um, you can drive for a couple hours on the interstate and end up in a different state. Like Our culture is designed to get us from one place to another. Um, traveling is... Uh, like I said, not only just the thing that we do when we have to, but it's become an entire industry. There's uh, an, an entire uh, economy built around traveling. In some places, towns exist, cities exist because of the destination. Um, you know, there's, there's cities that are entirely built around the travel industry. When we went to, to Orlando last Christmas time, like that entire area is built around a very particular uh, tourist industry. Uh, The whole thing functions that way. Uh, Hotels, amusement parks, restaurants, airports, car rental facilities, uh, spas, golf courses, uh, water parks, cruise ships, right? Like shopping centers, tour guides, uh, tour map sales places, right? And on and on and on and on. There's things that are just built around the idea that people are going to travel. They're going to go somewhere, spend some time, have fun, and then go back home. As a society, we generally enjoy these types of trips. Traveling is generally viewed as a positive thing, sometimes as a luxury. If you have enough money or you have enough time, you can go on vacation and travel and experience part of the world that you normally wouldn't. The ability to get away from the everyday routines is a is, like I said, a luxury or a blessing. Um, You have the opportunity to see and experience new things, explore areas that maybe you've never been to before. These are things that many people long for. When you talk about, what are you going to do over the summer? What are you going to do at Christmas time? Oftentimes, it's travel that people discuss. And sure, it can be a lot of work to plan a trip, to pack, to make a All the arrangements, the details, it can be a tremendous amount of work. You can often come home from your vacation more tired than when you left. That has been the case more than once for us. Um, Sure, it can cost quite a bit of money for some of these experiences. So it can be tiring. It can be a lot of work. It can be expensive. But we continue to eagerly long for the next adventure, don't we? We talk about when are we going to have our next vacation or our next trip. And as we have these experiences, even if we have bad experiences, maybe sometimes especially as we have the bad experiences, we tell these stories and cherish the memories. So I mentioned a minute ago that, you know, my family went to to Orlando last Christmas time. Well, we had been down there a few years before, 
and I had booked a resort that was less than ideal. Um, it wasn't great. And so when we were down there the last time, my family was recounting the stories of this terrible experience we had with this other resort. So even though it was a terrible experience, we were telling that story laughing. The family I, I, I grew up in, my mom and my dad and my, my sister, we would go camping when I was younger. And one of the stories that gets told the most now about vacations when I was a kid was when we went camping in Missouri and it rained for four days straight and there was water running through our tent and the air mattresses that we were sleeping on were floating. And I ended up as a five or six-year-old with pneumonia and ended up in the uh, hospital for two weeks when we got back. Terrible vacation, but we love to tell the story. Um, we also blame it on my sister who bought sunglasses at the tourist place, the gift shop, and it rained for like five days after she bought sunglasses, so we blame the sunglasses. But these are the types of stories we tell, right? Even when things are bad experiences, we remember them and tell the stories fondly. They become part of our story. Our kids grow up telling these stories, hearing these stories. Uh, we don't want to forget what we experienced. We don't want to forget what we saw, what we learned, what we did. It's important to remember. And so we take pictures and videos in the moment. Uh, my dad was the guy on family vacations with the camcorder back in the day, the big old, the younger people have no idea what I'm talking about, but you'd carry this box on your shoulder that had a and record stuff to a tape, and then you could play it. Anyways, uh, now we've got phones that record everything, take pictures. But we want to remember our experiences. We do our best to soak in the memories so we can bring them with us wherever we go. We also do something else that the travel industry has figured out. And this is probably the primary thing that they've figured out. As we travel, yeah, we like to remember things, we like to experience things. But we like to buy things. Um, you can't ride a roller coaster or explore a cave or a historical place or um, can't go to some place of significance without somehow being funneled through a gift shop. Have you experienced that? Like, come see this historical thing or come ride this roller coaster. And when, you get, when you're done, we're going to funnel you through the gift shop. Right? They've designed the flow of traffic to help us find souvenirs, mementos of this, this trip. Uh, when you're traveling, you can't even uh, go to a gas station along the highway without being invited to buy mementos, as if you want to remember your, your pit stop at the gas station. Um, but there, there are all kinds of souvenirs, license plates with everybody's names on it, uh, little shot glasses with all kinds of inappropriate sayings about the state, uh, T-shirts and hats and all kinds of things that you can get at a gas station on the highway because that's what you want to remember. But they've realized that we, we buy these souvenirs. We buy mementos of our journeys. We want to own something so we can hold on to that memory, so we have something concrete put on our shelves or in our office or even just in a, a memory box of some sort. So we can show it to other people and say, oh, look at this thing, look at this picture, look at this, let me tell you a story, and we can share our experiences with other people. We all know people that collect specific things on trips, don't we? You know people that travel and collect things as we travel? When I was, when I was little, my family, we'd go on road trips pretty much every summer, and I somehow started a, a habit where I, I bought a cowboy hat when we were in, I think, Wyoming uh, one year, and then I started buying pins 
little pins and I put in the cowboy hat. It was, it was awful looking. Um, it was a terrible thing. But I, I had this cowboy hat full of pins. It was ridiculous. But that was my, my thing, um, I guess, for a while. Um, but other people collect things too, right? So what kind of things, and feel free to holler it out, what kind of things do people collect when they travel? Souvenirs, what are collectibles? Anybody? Thimbles? Yeah? Spoons? A lot of spoons. Rocks? Yeah? Salt and pepper shakers. Okay. What's that? Magnets? Yeah. That's a good one. Keychains? Coffee cups? Postcards? T-shirts? Yeah. Ornaments? Okay. State stickers? Hats? (laughs) That would be my son. (laughs) Smash pennies? Oh, you put the penny in and crank it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we collect a lot of different things, right? It's a memento that we, we can keep with us that can... Yeah, we had this experience, but we have this uh, thing that we brought home that somehow helps us tell the story. Um, when I was eight years old, my family traveled to, to Wyoming. We went to Yellowstone National Park, and it was 1988. It was the year of uh, the great forest fire. Like, it was crazy. And we were out there while things were on fire. Um, we were actually at Old Faithful with the, the geysers when the officials came in and shut it down for the day, like we got kicked out because they were spraying foam on the lodge and like we actually had to leave because it was under sort of fire. And so our souvenirs from that trip were these, these t-shirts or sweatshirts that said, I survived Yellowstone 1988. But then the guy that made them took a blowtorch and like burned holes all through them and stuff. We had, I was so proud to, I, again, I was a weird kid, but I was so proud of that. I wore it to school whenever I could. And people were like, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you wearing this burned up sweatshirt? But we want to remember, right? We want, we want people to know what we've experienced. We want to share these, again, sometimes terrible experiences. We want other people to know what we've, where we've been and what we've experienced. So that's kind of the context for this, this week's message. Uh, the sermon title is just Remember. And so we're going to look at, at actually two different scriptures today about remembering. Um, the first one we're going to look at is Deuteronomy 24. 19 through 22. I'm going to read from the the New Living Translation, the NLT, which is a little bit different than I usually use the NIV, but I like the NLT this week. Um, This passage in Deuteronomy will sound very familiar. It'll sound a lot like the Leviticus 19 scriptures we've read the last several weeks, but this is not the Leviticus 19 passages. This is Deuteronomy 24, completely different book, completely different context. Um... See if you can pick up where it's different, all right? If you've been here the last few weeks, there should be a part of it that stands out. All right, Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22 says, When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. 
All right, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would gather our minds, that you may, that we may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So like I said, this passage in Deuteronomy, if you've been here the past few weeks, should sound a lot like the passage in Leviticus 19. God was commanding Israel to leave crops, to leave the corners of their fields, to leave their grapes on the vine for those who have needs. Again, I used a different translation this week, so the wording was a little different. Um, But the idea was still the same, right? Leave some stuff behind for those who have needs. But here in Deuteronomy, God says something extra. There's an extra message tagged on to the end. And the way that uh, my mind works, but the way that like, you can approach biblical study is, is not say what is also similar, but what is different. Why is it different? How is that significant? And so that tagline at the end can teach us something today. In Deuteronomy, God says to remember that once Israel was slaves in Egypt, and that's why I'm telling you to do this. So not only here's the command, but this command is tied to the fact that you were once slaves in Egypt. So Deuteronomy, that's a funny word. It means second teaching or second law. Um, Got a rock star thing happening here. You hear it? Got it, Jonas? You know what's going on? All right. Um, So it means second law or second teaching. Uh, God gave Moses the law in Exodus and Leviticus, right? Like the whole Ten Commandments, top of the mountain, Mount Sinai thing, right? We're familiar with that story. He brings down the law, delivers it to the people. Deuteronomy is the teaching of the law that happens years later. It's not that first story. It's a teaching of that law but it's recorded later. Then the passing of time and the the life of the community shapes how some of that teaching is done, the way that the people understand it and some of what is said. So when we look at Deuteronomy, when we look at the law present there, we can compare it to the original teaching and say, well, what's different and why is it different? And in this case, remembering that Israel had once been slaves in Egypt is added, and it adds significance, right? The motivation behind why. Why do we leave the corners of our field? Why do we leave the grapes on the vine? Because Israel was once slaves in Egypt. This is an interesting theological statement. This is an interesting motivation, right? The author of Deuteronomy has connected, theologically, God's command to be generous to those who, in, who have needs. God says, be generous with those who have needs, because Israel, God's chosen people, had a history of being slaves in Egypt. The phrase of remembering that you were once slaves in Egypt carries a great deal of weight here. Because it's not just remember that you once lived in a foreign land, or you were once burdened by the weight of oppression and slavery in this land. Well, that's part of it. 
It's not the whole picture. It's also implied that when remembering that Israel was once slaves in Egypt, remember that it was God, was the one in grace and mercy who led you out and gathered you together as his people. Right? So, again, leave the corners of your field, leave grapes on the vine, because you once were people who were in slavery, and God, in his goodness and his mercy and his grace, freed you from that and cared for you and provided for you. And that's why you should do that for other people. Now, as God's people, who were delivered and saved by God, it was their turn, it was Israel's turn, to give grace and mercy to those in need. God's people are to represent God's character. There's this really challenging verse in Scripture, that be holy as God is, ho- as God is holy, as I am holy, God, God's speaking there. And he doesn't mean, like, be without flaw, be all-powerful, be, you know, perfect, be controller of the universe, all that type of stuff. When he says, be holy as I am holy, he's speaking like this. God's people are to represent God's character. For the people of Israel... It was their history that shaped their identity. They look back at Abraham, they look back at Jacob, and they, when they do that, they find out who they are. Their story is, is rooted in who they, who they are because of who they were. This is why the Old Testament stories, especially in Genesis, are so critical to the life of Israel. They look back to find out who they were. They look at the promises and the covenants that God made in the past, is the very thing that made them who they are today. So here in Deuteronomy, the law was being taught to people who had never been in Egypt. Enough generations had passed, enough time had gone by, that the hearers of Deuteronomy had never been the people enslaved in Egypt. And yet their faith was completely wrapped up on their identity as being God's people. And what that means is people that were led out of Egypt by God. So even though they had never been slaves in Egypt, that identity lived on with them. And our faith today has a tendency to be more forward-looking. At times, faith can be about escaping our current situations, uh, something about expecting what's going to be great in the future. It can be something that, you know, God's going to fix something down the road or, you know, going to heaven when I die. Um, Our faith can be very forward-looking, but more so than backward-looking. It also can be an abstract thing. It can be more a concept or an idea. It can be wrapped up in beliefs. For Israel, it was connected to physical places and experiences as much as it is about ideas and beliefs and doctrines. To be a Christian, for most, means to believe certain things about God, about Jesus, and about sin, right? That's how we define who's a Christian. Do you believe these things? When you're, in, when you're converted to Christianity, we're asked, well, do you believe these things, right? Belief is the kind of the boundaries of the Christian faith. And the church guards this boundary of what is considered right belief and what is wrong belief, right? That's the source of many of the church conflicts, debates, even cultural-wide. But for Israel... Their faith was much more about the physical. It was about places. It was about experiences. It was about tangible things. It was about land. It was about meals. It was about their crops and their vines. Their beliefs showed up in practices. 
They obviously had beliefs, but they were revealed through what they did and how they did them. So the Passover meal, for example, was a yearly reminder that not only do we believe that God saves, but we pointed to a specific event in the history of our people in which God saved us. Right? So that was an annual meal. The Passover was this experience that helped you physically touch something that teaches you about God. Participating in that meal, that Passover, was this way of teaching and remembering who God is and what God has done. And the Jewish faith is full of all kinds of these rituals, practices, meals, feasts, celebrations. And these, these rituals taught about God through the practicing of an activity that represents God's actions. So I hope I haven't totally lost you at this point because this feels like a kind of nerdy stuff behind the scenes here. But I want to look at another example of a Jewish practice from Scripture that was simple, it was physical, it was tangible, um, but a reminder of God's work in the lives of God's people. We're going to quickly look in Joshua chapter 4. We'll pick up the story where Israelites were heading towards the promised land. So if you're familiar with the story, um, you might know where this is. If you're not, God's people have been promised to live in this this promised land, and they're on their way there. It's been quite a journey. Um, There's been a lot of challenges, and they're on their way and just about to enter into this promised land. And there's the Jordan River is the boundary of this land. If we can just get across the Jordan River, we'll be in the land that God wants us to be in. To get where God was taking them, they had to cross this river. And so God told them to take the priests that were part of their, their group and that these priests should take the Ark of the Covenant, the holy container for the Ten Commandments. This, this traveling party carried their law with them in this co- uh, Ark of the Covenant. And the priests were told to carry it into the Jordan River. And when they carried it into the Jordan River, then the people would be able to cross. So let's, uh, Joshua chapter 4, look at a a few verses that will be on on the screen. Um, Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, so they they walk in, the priests walk in with the, the covenant, the water parts, and the people are able to walk across the Jordan River in safety across relatively dry ground, right? That's the story here. So now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them saying, take up for yourself 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, And carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. And we'll jump to verse 20. Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you and until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Then all the peoples of earth may know that the hand of God, hand of the Lord is mighty, 
so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So God says to his people, hey guys, as you cross through the Jordan River, as you're on your travels, pick up some stones. Could you hit the gift shop? Pick up these rocks from the middle of the Jordan River as souvenirs to show the kids someday. That's what that whole scripture is about. Stones pulled out of the dry ground under the Jordan River. Last week we looked at trusting God as he called us to give away our resources. As, uh, as we uh, attempt to push back against this culture that tells us to focus on ourselves. That trusting in God helps us to help others in need. We explored how trusting God is hard because it goes against everything our, our natural instincts tells us. And it contradicts the ways of the world. Right? Trusting God kind of pushes back against fear and worry that can prevent us from giving freely. Trusting in God will, trusting that God will provide, seeking the place where God has shaped things, again, seeking the kingdom. Um, we realize that God provides for all of our needs. And that seeking isn't a one-time event, but a daily practice of trusting God each and every day. So that was last week, trust. But let me ask you this today. Do you think it's easier to trust someone to do something if you know that they've done it before? Is it easier to put your trust in somebody if you've seen it or you have confidence that they've done it well before? Does anyone ever check an online review before you make a purchase from Amazon? <laughs> have you ever looked up a, a restaurant online or on Yelp or whatever to see what other people are saying about it before you go there yourself. Do you ever ask people for input about a particular service before you sign up for them to come and, and set it up or whatever? Do you think anyone crossing the Jordan River was thinking about the time where their people had crossed through the Red Sea? Do you think that they could trust God in that moment because God had done something similar already and they knew it? They remembered God's faithfulness in the past, God's ability in the past, and so in the moment they walked across the Jordan River. Does faith in God grow as we experience godly things? Do we have those memories to draw upon as we face challenges today? Can we remember what God has done in the past? Or do we start from scratch every time? Every time a new challenge pops up, every time a new situation shows up, do we approach it going, well, I wonder what God will do today. Remembering what God has done in the past has two implications for us today. The first thing it can do is it can serve as a reminder and encouragement, motivation in our personal faith relationship with God. So when I get discouraged or frustrated or worried or stressed, I get anxious or frightened, I can recall a time in my life, think of a moment or a season in my life where God was faithful, where God was at work, where God took care of something that I wasn't sure how I was going to take care of myself. I can remember God's faithfulness to me. This is one of the purposes of things like Ash Wednesday or like baptism, even wedding rings are supposed to help us remember how God has worked in our lives, the way that God has moved us 
God has provided for us, cared for us, and the promises God makes for us. They are physical, symbolic reminders of the work of God in our everyday lives. And when we encounter those things again, when we run across those things that trigger the memory, when we catch up on the souvenirs of our journey with Jesus, we are reminded of the promises that God is at work in our lives. Because we have experienced God's goodness in the past, we can trust, we can know God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that God is good and that God is present with us. So going back to Deuteronomy, remembering the grace and the freedom that God gives us allows us to trust in God enough to give our resources away freely, to not be consumed by worry or fear. God tells Israel to help those in need because don't you remember I once helped you when you were in need? And so the first implication of remembering God's goodness is the idea that to be a child of God is to embody God's nature. To not only believe things about him, but to carry out the very things that God is working in. If you're a Christian today, it means God has rescued you from sin at some point. It means that God has offered you forgiveness It means that God has brought you from darkness into light. It means God has replaced darkness with new light, death with life, condemnation with mercy. Remembering what God has done for you and with you can renew your faith. It can motivate you to action. It can provide freedom If you're a Christian today, ask yourself, where would you be if God had not acted in your life? That's the first implication of remembering what God has done. The second is this. Not only can our memories of God uh, and what he has done benefit us, but it can be an open door for other people. We see the stones in Joshua chapter 4 being deliberately pulled from the Jordan River and placed so that future generations would see them and ask, what are these stones for? When we trust God and leave the corners of our fields unharvested metaphorically, people will notice a life of generosity, a life uh, being open to other people. People will notice a life not consumed by fear or by worry. And when people ask how or why we are able to live differently, we can tell them what we remember about God. We can point to a Jordan River experience for ourselves. Well, your finances aren't aren't great. You're, You're laid off of work or you have this health issue. How can you have peace in this moment? Why aren't you more worried? Why aren't you consumed by fear? Why aren't you terrified about what's to come? Well, God's been with me before. He's been with me through these situations, and I I can trust him. Let me tell you about how God walks with me through these hard situations. So I can live differently now. I can tell other people. I can share with other people because I have a memory of what God has done in the past. Our lives become these memorial stones. 
There's a passage in the New Testament about living, being living stones, and I feel like it points back to this. Our lives become these memorial stones that people see and ask questions, and maybe it doesn't tell the whole story, but it starts the conversation. Because when people will see our lives, they wonder about the significance Hey, you left that corner of your field unharvested. What's going on? Well, let me tell you about my God who takes care of me. Next week, our series continues in this corners of the field with a focus on welcoming. Trusting God and having an active memory of God's work in our lives allows us to engage with other peoples in a way we couldn't do on our own. The, the point of next week's sermon, without giving away the whole thing, but the, the challenge is not to leave things in the field for others. The challenge is to look out the window of your house and see people eating your grapes and picking your crop and go, I'm so glad they're here. <laughs> Making them feel welcome, not judged, condemned, less than. Right? Trusting God, having that active memory of God's provision in our lives reminds us, allows us, prepares us to engage in, uh, with other people in a way we couldn't do on our own. By remembering the grace that God has given to you, you are then freed and called to extend grace to others. Remember what God has done. Identify it. Develop routines, practices that help you remember. Open yourselves up to others. Welcome and invite them into your fields metaphorically speaking, right? If you find yourself having forgotten about what God has done, if you've gone through a season that is just draining and difficult and, and full of challenges, it might be easier to focus on the, what's not been done than what has been done. It might be easy to take our attention off of, of God and what he has done through Jesus. And so if you have forgotten or you find yourself distracted, today we are together invited to remember If you find trust in God hard in this moment, it might be that it's been a minute since you've recalled his grace and his love that you've already received. So in this moment, here together, gathered in worship, you will have the opportunity to step towards God in faith again. If the busyness of life, constant distraction, or maybe even sometimes a sense of pride can kick in and we forget a little bit about what God has done. If you find yourself ignoring or forgetting that God has been with us this whole time, I invite you today to remember. Communion, this part of our service today, uh, is an event, is a ritual, is a practice, a sacrament, which is designed to help us remember The words of Jesus as he taught this to his disciples was said, do this in remembrance of me. And so the invitation as we approach the table of the Lord today is to come in a time of prayer and remember that you were once enslaved. You were once trapped by sin and by fear and by the things of this world. Remember that it is God who saves And so, as we prepare to come to the table, 
If you need to take a few moments just to acknowledge God, confess of your efforts to do it yourself, to be independent of God, or simply just to thank God for all he has done, this is a great time to do that. It's a great time to taste the goodness of God and remember that it is God who provides for us. This communion supper is instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a sacrament which proclaims his life. It tells a story of who he is, his sufferings, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and the hope of his return. It shines forth, it shows forth, it, it tells the story of the Lord's death until his return. Communion is a means of grace. It's one of these stones gathered from the Jordan River and set deliberately so people would see it and go, ooh, what's God doing there? Can I hear the story? Can I experience the grace and mercy of God? It's a means of grace which is present through the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation, in humility and gratefulness. All those who are truly repentant, those who forsake their sins and believe in Jesus for salvation, are invited to participate in this. We come to the table that we may be renewed in life, renewed in salvation, and be made one by the Spirit. In unity with the church, we confess our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again again.